January 1692, the Puritans in Salem Village worry about eternal salvation. Suddenly, they discover Satan has been set loose in their midst. I'm Richard. I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. All right. We're so happy that you can be with us today. Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, a, uh, a piece of American history that I've always found incredibly fascinating, and that'll be the Salem Witch Trials. Now, we've actually spent a lot of time doing some research into this, and we're going to actually go into a few more details that a lot of people don't know about. Now, this is something that always pops up every year in, in high schools and colleges across America. But, uh, Dad, you've been really doing some research into some things that people may not know about the trials. I love the uh, unknown uh, details that uh, usually get lost in the telling of the story of history because they add so much color to what actually happened and, and really so much uh, new understanding as to why things might have unfolded the way they did. So hopefully most of the material that we will share in our next several podcasts about the Salem witchcraft event will be things that people have never heard before. Right, because this is going to be our own little mini-series. <laughs> it sure is. And let me just uh, tell folks um, why this is an important piece of American history. Uh, by the end of the 1690s in Puritan New England, 20 innocent people had been executed because of the nonsense that was taking place in this story. Five wow. of them would die in a filthy colonial prison cell, five more, and one person was even crushed to death with heavy stones being placed on his chest. Mm. That uh, doesn't even uh, take into account hundreds of additional people who were accused of witchcraft, who uh, spent some time in one of those jail cells, who lost their farms, who lost their, uh, their wealth, who lost their reputation. This is an event in mass hysteria that absolutely... Uh, wiped out a whole section of our, our country back then. And so I think it's uh, worth taking a, a really in-depth look uh, at this story and, and try to figure out why this yeah. thing actually happened. So we're going to look at uh, Puritan life to find out some answers and, and try to determine why this tragic event occurred. Now, Gary, it all started in the unlikeliest setting of all, Oh, do tell. The home of Salem Village's Puritan minister, Samuel Paris. Mm. So if you're talking about setting Salem loose in a community... You mean Satan? Uh, <laughs> yeah, Satan. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay, if you're talking about letting him loose in a community, you wouldn't expect to have to look at the home of the community minister. No, no, that is quite ironic. But in our story, we do. Uh, so let's go ahead uh, for the folks to uh, try and describe his home so everyone can see it in their imagination. A mansion. Yes, it's, well, no, it's <laughs> not a, ma a mansion. His uh, home or parsonage had four rooms. There were two upstairs and uh, two on the ground floor. So it was actually fairly small. Mm. But on the back, they had uh, built a dairy and they also had built a, a brewery. Everyone drank alcoholic beverages at the meals, by the way, including the children. Now, there's fact number one that I bet people have not heard yeah. before. All right, you heard it here first. They actually had home craft beers 
back in the 1700s before it was popular in 2020. Yeah, even in these 1600s <laughs> when the story took place. And then uh, the children uh, were expected to drink alcoholic beverages with meals just as the adults. So Times were that. different. I think that's a little known fact. Uh, and the drinks, by the way, ranged from beer and wine to alcoholic cider. Now, they had a massive uh, brick chimney in this parsonage, and it served all of the fireplaces in each of the rooms. There was a huge hearth in the main room, and that was equipped for roasting pigs or chickens or sides of beef. And they also had an oven built into mm. the wall for overnight uh, bread baking. There were three designated mealtimes, breakfast, midday dinner, and uh, evening supper. Trust me, the Puritans ate some pretty hearty meals. For the most part, some of the Puritans were very poor and did not, but uh, our family that we're talking about... They did, they did pretty well for themselves. They did. Uh, they feasted on venison that might be topped with pure maple syrup. Oh, mm. uh, other game from the nearby forest or fish from the rivers and meat and poultry raised in their backyard and a vast variety of vegetables from the garden. So... They did pretty well. We think of yes. the Puritans living a Spartan lifestyle, but many of them really enjoyed the good life when it came to food. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the winter of 1692, which is when our story starts, it was a particularly cold one. And uh, despite that massive chimney that I've described and the multiple fireplaces, uh, the Paris house was almost as cold inside as it was outside. A breakfast was by candlelight, even at daybreak, because in the winter, candles were needed uh, for light all day long. And at breakfast, the children would begin a never-ending round of chores. They would cook, they would clean, they would sew, they would wash clothes, they would make candles or anything else that they might need. Again, no Walmart was available back then. Mm. Almost everything you used, you made yourself or you, you raised. All right, no kids were playing Xbox or on iPads all day. Mm. Now, as for church, uh, church services were mandatory, and they were fairly bland most of the time unless the preacher let loose a fiery uh, sermon. The meeting house was a plain wooden structure. And when the pastor was preaching his sermon, by the way, Gary, a male member of the congregation walked up and down the aisles. And mm. if you looked like you were closing your eyes and starting to nod off, he would prod you with a stick. <laughs> and if you were a chronic dozer, you might actually get uh, out there in the stocks and pillories and, and uh, embarrassed in public. So... Uh, Dozing off uh, during the sermon in church was a no-no. That -no. <laughs> sure sounds like it. Uh, the meeting house was always filled on Thursday afternoons as well as on Sundays. And uh, the lives of the children, as you can uh, probably tell by now, they were monotonous beyond all belief. They, uh. they did live with the constant fear of Indian attacks or possible illness. Uh, and uh, the Puritans did have a very simple concept of human nature. Either you were saintly or sinful. You were 100% either one or the other. Mm -hmm. You were either going to heaven or you were going to hell, and it was preordained, so there was really nothing you could do about so, it. So they pretty much knew you were going to go to hell before you were born. Yeah, they didn't really know who was going to hell and but who you, was going to heaven, but, but somebody they would. knew it had been preordained mm -hmm. and there was nothing they could do about it. Or so we think. Uh. Because uh, they, uh, they uh, fudged that a little bit, and they would uh, admonish their children to do good works, to lead saintly lives, right. and maybe hopes of gaining that uh, salvation. So 
They um, they weren't uh, pure with that predestination um, theory. Right. Now, I would have to imagine, though, this monotony for the children led them to probably get themselves into trouble. Yes, uh, that's correct. Uh, and so let's find out uh, about the specific condition that existed in Samuel Paris's house. Ooh. Samuel Paris was the Puritan minister there at Salem uh, Village. Right. He was a college dropout. Mm -hmm. He left Harvard without a degree. He then tried his hand in business, and soon he failed in those endeavors as well. Oh. Mm -hmm. And he even failed at creating a large family. His wife could only conceive three children for him when it was more common back then to have a family consisting of up to ten children. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> so Samuel Paris was proving himself to be a total and utter failure in life. Uh, so it's no wonder, Gary, that he was a man with very low self-esteem. Sounds like it. And he became bitter, rigid, merciless. His behavior and attitude attracted hatred and it attracted enemies. Mm. So desperate to support his small family, he accepted this call to become a very small village pastor there in Salem, Massachusetts, but four years after his arrival, he would again be hated so much that his enemies would succeed in running him out of town. But not before his family unleashed the worst terror the Massachusetts Bay Colony had ever experienced. Now, Samuel Paris had only been in Salem Village three years before Satan started to run amok. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, he's going to go down in history as an utter failure in life, and he was neither saintly nor beneficial to the Salem community. But everybody can, uh, you know, come to their own conclusion about Samuel Paris. Oh, sure. But uh, with him when he arrived, by the way, he uh, brought his sickly wife, his three children, and his orphaned 11-year-old niece, Abigail Williams. Now, somewhat unusual for Puritan New England, Paris also owned a slave couple, supposedly from the West Indies. I believe they were from the West Indies. Their name was Tichiba and John Indian. Here's where we are going to run directly uh, into a brick wall of history. Uh, historically, we've pictured Tichiba as a black woman steeped in voodoo. I believe that to be totally and absolutely incorrect. Right. Well, I mean, in the movie uh, and in the book, The Crucible, that's how she's described as somebody who is from, um, where was it, uh, Barbados yes. or somewhere like that, yes. and that she brought this voodoo culture into the Salem community. Yeah, wrong. So there's one example of where the movies are out to entertain us, not necessarily not, yeah. uh, educate us. Right. Uh, she and her husband were, as their last name implied, Indians. So like Native Americans. Yeah, yeah. They, and they didn't practice voodoo. Now, were they from Barbados? Yes, but uh, they were Indians, Caribbean Indians. Okay. Uh, there is still, I, I have to be honest, there is still some question among some scholars as to whether or not um, she was black. Uh, but in my mind, the overwhelming evidence leads me to believe that uh, she was Indian. Uh, first of all, all of the contemporaries that knew her, that knew the Paris family, right. all of them regarded her as Indian. And they knew the difference because there were a few slaves that were black, and those they referred to as Africans. Uh -huh. But they always referred to her as Indian. And I've even seen one of the jailer's bills where he uh, billed her for her food while she was in jail. 
um, and referred to her as Indian, as an Indian. Okay. So I'm going to go with what the contemporaries believed. That she was? She was an Indian, Indian. And, not, okay. and not um uh, an African uh, slave. Uh, and because of this, uh, the villagers looked upon her with even more suspicion than they would have an African slave because the Puritans believed that Native Americans were servants of the devil. Really? Yes, or actually the devils themselves. So this is why I'm making a big issue over the fact that she was most likely Indian and not African. Mm-hmm. because all of the folks in that village were really leery of her because, again, the religion they were practicing said she was connected with the devil. Okay. Well, then that makes a little bit more sense as far as where the story's going to go next. Right, because uh, you know what? Um, uh, Indians, um, Indians were, uh, you know, serving the devil. <laughs> At least to the Puritans, they believed. That's right. Now... We're going to talk briefly about the uh, children at this time because they are going to initiate the drama of the Salem witchcraft event. Right. They were at the center of this whole They were at the center of this. But you already heard that their father was a bitter, rigid, unpopular person. Sure. So in that household, in that family, we have Elizabeth Paris. Now, she was called Betty. So we're going to refer to her as Betty throughout our story. Because her mother's name was also Elizabeth. So the child we will refer to as Betty, and that was her nickname. She had a younger brother and sister. They didn't play much of a part at all in this story. But uh, she also had her 11 11 or 12-year-old cousin, uh, Abigail, Abigail Williams, who was an orphan. Right. Now, these kids spent their days and nights together in the Paris house, and one night... Betty and Abigail decided to experiment with fortune telling. Oh. On several of those frigid January afternoons in 1692, at least two of the children, Betty and Abigail, relieved the afternoon boredom by exploring what was forbidden to them. As children do. Yes, especially when they're bored. They started to dabble in fortune-telling. Now, not voodoo, not voodoo, as many would have you believe, but the traditional old-world English fortune-telling. And English fortune-telling made use of keys and peas and nails, possibly a horseshoe. That's the weirdest fortune-telling I've Uh, ever heard in my life. Uh, Trust me, this did not come uh, with Tichaba from the Barbados. (laughs) It does not sound like it came from the Barbados. No, it's from England. Uh, and also the common egg. Ah. Old English tradition, Gary, tells us that if you break an egg into a glass and you observe the shape that the egg white takes, it could tell you something about your future husband. Now, what do you think was going through the mind of these impressionable 11, 12-year-old girls? Well... When I hear this, the, the, the only thing that goes through my mind is that that's pretty much what young girls do. You know, I'm not saying that they practice, uh, you know, any kind of like Fortune rituals uh, or things like that. But what I'm saying is that I know uh, from uh, being a kid, 
you always have this fascination, you know, like light as a feather or, you know, um, doing the fortune tellers out of paper and things like it's just the natural curiosity of the supernatural. Today we have the Ouija board. Well, yeah, the Ouija board came out much, much long ago, a longer ago than than we would think. But uh, but yes, I mean, you know, you typically think about that, like you know, when girls have sleepovers, they pull out the Ouija board and they ask, you know, like, oh, is such and so going to go with me to the dance or whatever, you know? Um, and then of course there's a thing that came out a few years ago. Um, I think it's called Charlie Charlie. I know uh, my kids at camp were doing it all the time, and we we're like, come on, guys where they take pencils and they would put them, stack them so that they would be in unbalance and they'd ask a question and see if the pencil would move on its own. So it's just something that kids do. Mm -hmm. And on those cold January afternoons in the Paris home, those two pre-teenage girls may well have been attempting just to learn something about their future husbands. It may have been as innocent as that. Now, it will turn out to be far, far uglier by the time uh, we're finished with the story, but it may have started off with a touch of innocence. But deep down, Gary, they knew they were doing something terrible. They did, uh, that guilt. their religion. Mm-hmm. They knew that they were doing something that could invoke evil powers yes. and something that might call up the devil himself. And for these girls, the devil was no abstract notion. Mm-hmm. Well, and let me throw this in there real quick. It um, was the real deal. Mm-hmm. They refer to um, this egg reading as the evil eye. So, I mean, if that doesn't add a little bit more, uh, you know, sinister scope to this whole thing, and I'm sure that that's, according to what I've learned about it, that's the way it's been known for a very long time, so. Well, just imagine how terrifying it must have been to these two girls, impressionable uh, youngsters, when the stale egg white apparently, at least in their minds, took the shape of a coffin. Uh Uh-oh. Now, we know this is exactly what happened because I am now going to read a written account by the Reverend John Hale. He was a Puritan pastor in nearby Beverly, Massachusetts. He was personally familiar with these people and the event, and here is what he wrote. Oh, read it. I knew one of the afflicted persons who was, was, as I was credibly informed did try it with an egg and a glass to find her future husband's calling till there came up a coffin that is a specter in likeness of a coffin and she was afterward followed with diabolical molestations to her death reverend john hale writing about this very experiment that the girls had conducted Now, for the first time ever on our podcast, we, Gary and I, will actually recreate the fortune-telling incident which triggered that mass hysteria in Salem Village 330 years ago. Gary, can you uh, begin the experiment and describe each and every detail as the egg white descends into the glass? Yes. um, So I I was talked into um, having this glass of water in front of me today. A warm glass. A water. warm glass. Well, I, yeah, I put some warm water in there, mm-hmm. and I have a, an egg here. Um, now, uh, this process uh, that we are about to uh, to do is is known as umancing. I believe I'm saying that correctly. And and this actually has some uh, ties that go back to uh, Greek culture, and um, and even Celtic culture. 
They, they use this as a way to kind of predict things. So basically what's happening uh, right now is that uh, I'm going to uh, break this egg. It's an egg at room temperature. We believe it must have been a warm egg, but uh, the accounts, the contemporary accounts said that it was a stale egg. Right. Well, I mean, you can take it however you want uh, as far as what they're saying, but, uh, you know, it's it's the majority of them, you, you just get it outside. So I, I think the reason why they say that now is just because if you, you can't keep an egg out, right. it's going to go bad. Right. So anyways, uh, so egg in the water. Um, now, what you're supposed to see is the egg whites uh, are affected by the warm water, and they start to rise up. And then this is supposed to bring in images. So right uh, now, I see the egg yolk sitting at the bottom of the glass, and I do not see the egg yolk uh, stirring at all. Well, when you're on the other side of the table, it's kind of hard to see that. But it, there is a little bit that it's starting to go up a little bit right now. Okay. And uh, it kind of looks a little bit like a spider web uh, to me, but it's just a very little bit. So, I, I, you know, I, I would assume that we'd have a little bit more going up. But uh, apparently if you see in the egg whites as they're rising, you might see a face. If you see a face, that could be somebody who's messing with you or somebody who's hexed you. I don't see a face on there. So apparently we're good with that. Nobody is putting a hex on us today. Thank goodness. Um, so we haven't upset anybody. Uh, and I do see some bubbles. I'm not, there was something about bubbles. I don't know what the bubbles mean. Uh, if you see a ship, oh, that means you could be traveling. I mean, you know what? I'm going to stir it up. I, I see the, I see what you're talking about on the spider webs. Mm -hmm. They're starting to just, uh, rise to the top and it does look like a spider web. Mm -hmm. I don't, if, if anybody knows what that is, I'd be curious. Um, so it's definitely not a coffin. Yeah. Nope. Not a coffin at all. What the cl uh, girls claim they saw. Actually, that kind of looks like, you know, when, when I have a cold or something is when I sneeze into the Kleenex. Well, oh, wait, it's actually, there's more that's popping up there. Oh, what is that? Oh, it's almost got like a. Well, that almost is taking the, the shape. It's looking pretty frothy to me. From of, this angle. Almost like uh, mountains. It, it's got really? like a peak, like a tower. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. And there's a lot of bubbles that are starting to form in the center of it. Well, you know what? This tells us that this experiment may have extended over a number of minutes, not just instantly. Right. So when the girls were doing this for fortune telling, this could have been something that lasted for 30 minutes before they finally saw something. It could be. It could be. Uh, we're only just two or three minutes into the experiment. But right now what we are seeing is we are seeing the egg white starting to do some rising. It is. It is. Now, I mean, there's science behind this. It could just be because we know that uh, warm uh, things rise, cool things fall. So uh, as the water starts to warm up the egg, it may cause it to rise up even more. But it is fascinating how uh, it's almost like uh, I would equate it to a, a Rorschach, mm -hmm. you know, the inkblot test. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interpreted as far as what you see in there. And I could see like right now how it, it almost has a... Uh, it's starting to take the shape of quite possibly a body, you know, like a, a spectral form. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, that comes down to your own imagination or right. Right. Uh, what you want to interpret it as. Somebody might look at that and say it looks like a puppy dog. Well, just think, Gary, 300 years ago, 330 years ago uh, in Salem Village, Massachusetts Bay Colony, those two young girls did exactly, exactly what we did here tonight. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we're not experiencing any thunder or lightning, are we? <laughs> not to my knowledge. <laughs> well, the devil doesn't appear to be loose in our studio, does he? No, no, no. Well, hopefully we'll return next week with uh, Salem Witch Event Part 2. Yes, and we'll learn a little bit more about what the girls actually did and how things went crazy. Once again, I think I'm still Richard. I know I'm still Gary. And folks, this is just the beginning of an incredible story. <laughs>